It's been one year since Virtua Partners launched the very first Qualified Opportunity Fund. Since then, they have raised $100 million, roughly half of which has already been deployed. They've broken ground on numerous projects and have a pipeline of about 100 more. What challenges have they faced and what lessons have they learned? Find out next as I'm joined by Virtua's principal, Quinn Palomino. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Virtual Partners was one of the earliest investors in Opportunity Zones. They launched the first ever qualified opportunity fund back in June of 2018, just after the Opportunity Zone designations were made official, and they have been one of the leaders in Opportunity Zone education ever since. Here to speak with me today is one of Virtual Partners' principals, Quinn Palomino. Quinn joins us from her office in Scottsdale, Arizona. Quinn, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jimmy. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. As I mentioned in the intro, Virtual really was one of the earliest educational leaders in this space. And I personally learned a lot about Opportunity Zones from your websites and the webinars that you guys put on uh, back in the early days last year when I was first hearing and learning about the program. So I, I thank you for, for all your work in, in that regard. Can you tell me a little bit more about Virtua, um, when it was founded and, and what its mission is? Well, first, Jimmy, I just want to say thank you. I, I love hearing that uh, people heard our some of our early webinars when um, we had followed the legislation for Opportunity Zones throughout 2017 and incredibly excited when it was signed by the president and uh, just excited about how amazing the legislation was and shocked by how great it was for investors. But we have um, worked in tax centric investments um, since the crash. So in 2008, we actually helped salvage a lot of properties for our high net worth and ultra high net worth investors and just focusing on tax solutions for them. And Opportunity Zones really fell in our wheelhouse. We have nine different companies from cradle to grave, from asset management to development to management, uh, property management of our, of our investment properties. Yeah, before we dive in and start talking opportunity zones, I, I want to get your background story. Can you tell our listeners where you're from and how, how did you come to be principal at a global private equity firm? <laughs> well, I, I think um, pretty humble beginnings. And I think there are many here in, in the U.S. Who, who share similar backgrounds. I was born in Vietnam, right at the end of the Vietnam War. And my family came here, so I'm a first generation and grew up at the uh, refugee camp that the U.S. set up at Fort Chaffee in Arkansas. How old were you when you when you first came over? Uh, two years old, so pretty young. Um, but uh, this country is is home to me, and uh, I think um, incredible opportunities um, that this country has given to to myself, to my family. I, I look back and then think um, there's no other country um, I've had the opportunity and and. Uh, the privilege to be able to travel around the world, and there's nowhere quite like this. So um, happy to to see this type of legislation where we could give back to our communities as well. 
Absolutely. And, and when, when did your career begin and, and where, where did you get started in your career and, and, and how did you get to where you are today? You know, I, I laugh because if you're a first generation Vietnamese girl I, and anyone here on the phone who's a first generation Vietnamese probably knows this, you only have three options. You either become a doctor, um, marry a doctor or have a son as soon as possible, and he must be a doctor. So uh, with that said, I think I'm a bit of the black sheep in the family when I decided to go to business. My uh, father owned a a dry cleaners, came here to the U.S. and uh, worked at a donut shop and a car wash and uh, built himself up. And so I think I got the entrepreneurial bug pretty early on. Um, Got recruited, actually, um, during college and worked for a hotel hospital. I worked for Children's Hospital and worked underneath our uh, executive, our CFO, and worked with them on just optimizing revenue. And then during the um, late 90s, sorry, late 90s, early 2000s, development and construction, and worked on a number of the projects on federal stimulus money to just develop properties in the San Francisco Bay Area and along the coast in California. And during the downturn, um, the financial crisis in 2008, worked with a number of individuals, high net worth, family offices, on salvaging their properties. Many of them had tax liabilities, found themselves with a property that uh, the value was not what they purchased it at, and some in some cases losing their properties and finding themselves with a large tax bill. My business partner is Lloyd Kendall Jr., who is a tax attorney and serial entrepreneur up in the Bay Area. He's also the founder and chairman of United Business Bank. And so together we were working with uh, many investors on restructuring workouts on their commercial real estate properties. From that grew out our nine different affiliated companies that provide services in commercial real estate. Yeah, that, that's it's quite the story. I mean, you definitely did come from from humble beginnings, and to get to where you are today, I think that, that's that's important for our, our listeners to to know a little bit more about your personal background. So, thanks for sharing that with us. I want to shift our attention to opportunity zones now. When exactly was it when you you first heard of the opportunity zone program? When did you first learn of it? And what was your initial reaction to it? And and then what was your what was your colleagues' reaction to your excitement about the program? You know, we had followed it throughout um, mid-2017, followed the legislation throughout the end of 2017, fall and into the winter. It was seeing a, a solution, a potential solution. And I'll just back up a little bit, Jimmy, and just to share with you the environment at the time, many of our investors, both here in the States and uh and outside of the U.S., um, in Asia and Europe, many were, when they think of investing here in the U.S., many people think Manhattan, San Francisco, Orange County, California, perhaps Austin, just key cities. And so, and then kind of on the other foot, since our, a lot of our work in development and construction, a lot of city municipalities, you had a lot of cities who excellent team working on zoning but when you would have the investors kind of meet the city municipalities there was just a there was a barrier there as many times you would find city municipalities 
you know, hoping for what I would say the, the Taj Mahal for the homeless and, and trying to find the solution to that, where you found investors looking at that, the underwriting and the financials and that not working. When we saw the opportunity zone, we thought here is a potential to create a new language where what happened is the city started thinking, wow, we are now competing with 8,700 other census tracts. And how can we make ourselves more attractive to the investors? And it changed the language for the investors. You know, many of our investors have seen IRR returns, you know, 8% to 10% cash on cash distributions for our investments, IRRs in the mid 20s to 30s. And now the language change, I thought, if this is an opportunity, many of them have a very genuine desire for philanthropy and to give back to their communities, but they also have a, a responsibility to their families, to their shareholders. And they thought, now we can start discussing if we get a decent return, a strong return, a risk mitigated return, and we also have an opportunity for social impact, there was that interest as well. So the language changed, which allow both municipalities and investors to meet and look at other projects that perhaps they wouldn't have looked at before. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned risk mitigated return. What, what do you mean by that exactly? How, how is the Opportunity Zones program able to mitigate risk on investments of these types? Most of our investments are, we actually had a pipeline of investments prior to the Opportunity Zones. We have about 100 projects that fell into the Opportunity Zones. Where, um, and after the Opportunity Zones were announced, signed at the end of 17, early 18, I know many investors, sponsors had not really looked into Opportunity Zones. And we, we combed through the country and, and built a pipeline after that. There are projects that I would say just pencil out and make sense any day of the week. And, and those investors are, are very interested in. There are those investments that may not have worked prior to Opportunity Zones. And Opportunity Zones in and of themselves are not the magic bullet or the, um, the magic pill in order to make a, a project work. But what it's done is it allows cities to potentially look at subsidies in order to decrease the cost on a particular project. Now that allows the investors to have a project that hits the returns that they need. On the other side, you also have, now have a city, a municipality, a community who is invested in this project. They wanna see this project succeed. They also, in our relationship, uh, just two weeks ago, we broke ground on a project in Tempe, Arizona. And here was a project where the city worked closely with our team. They wanted additional workforce housing. And they said, we will look at reducing some of our impact fees so that in lieu of additional units that would allow individuals an affordable workforce housing units. And by working together, we were able to provide that. It has also, with Opportunity Zones, allowed us to partner with nonprofits across the country. Chicano Por La Calza is one of our uh, partners, and they have been working in their communities for the last five decades. Credit counseling, health care, child care. Why is this important? How does this mitigate the risk for the investors? Here is an organization that is proven by five-decade track record 
of working in the community, making sure that people have the counseling, the financial knowledge to pay their bills. Now you have those individuals staying in our units and that has just allowed continual, now you know that this project is sustainable. And, and that's pretty exciting when you have an entire community come together. You know, the cardinal sin or the, the rule that we tell our investors is this project, you need this to be sustainable and you need to finish your construction efficiently, um, complete it and on time, on budget and sustainable for 10 years. You don't wanna blow um, your incentive. So it's critical to have those close relationships throughout the community. That's one portion of the risk mitigation. The second part of it is the diversification. You know, everyone knows that, I know Jimmy, everyone um, here on, on, on your podcast listening, very, com you know, very familiar with opportunity zones. We all know about the deferral. We all know about the, um, the step up and the, the reduction in taxes. And then after 10 years, you know, no taxes on the, the new gain. The depreciation recapture. What we find is many of our investors look at this as a, a vehicle and an opportunity to diversify their portfolio. Perhaps they're invested, they see a, a huge capital gain in stocks and they're in California. Now they can diversify by realizing that and putting in an opportunity zone in potentially a, for us, a hosp hotel, hospitality, or in single family rentals across the country in different uh, regions of the country to continue to diversify themselves. That helps to mitigate the risk. So two types of risk mitigation, essentially. One, having that community support that enables the projects to be more sustainable, make sure that they're going to be there for the next 10 years, really helps strengthen that investment. And then two, individual investors being able to diversify their portfolios a little bit more. Basically, a, a government subsidy to, to, to diversify your portfolio into, into real estate private equity if you, if you haven't done so already. Absolutely, Jimmy. And, what, and in many of our projects across the country, we find uh, that we have such strong relationships with our local cities and municipalities. We see other growth around us, um, uh, new businesses being brought in, development of retail, other commercial buildings. And that is just revitalizing an entire area. That that is incredibly, and you know, for your investors, if you're investing in an area, you want to know that the local community is pouring into that area as well, and, and that continues to make that area stronger. Good, good. So you, you mentioned a few minutes ago that multifamily project in Tempe that you just broke ground on. That was actually featured in a recent episode of PBS NewsHour, which I'll link to in the show notes for this episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, about Virtua's Opportunity Zone funds? How many funds do you have? Uh, how many Opportunity Zone funds do you have? And, and, and what is your investment strategy exactly? What types of properties are you building and where? And what makes Virtua unique? Well, you know, we, uh, we like the Sun Belt. Anyone investing in Opportunity Zones, if you're looking at commercial real estate, you really want to look at being able to build. You want to look at a sponsor who has the experience on building and constructing and stabilizing and managing that property. 
Opportunity zones is a greenfield play, right? So, so you're looking at new construction. You know, we like the Sun Belt. Why is that? Because anyone who uh, is is familiar with construction and development, you know, it's it's a bit of a um, you know, pain management, uh, some problem will come up and you want to make sure that the team you're working with can address that problem. When I look at the Sunbelt, I look at, you look at material and labor shortages. You want to make sure that you're in an area that doesn't have that. We like growth areas. We like areas that have strong fundamentals. Um, you have a pro-business. You see the demographics growing, a deep labor pool in the area, jobs, economic competitiveness, lower taxes, lower regulations. You know, some areas in California, if you're looking at developing a project, you may be stuck in in CEQA for permits for for 10 years. And, you know, that that blows your your tax incentive. So economies that have legs, and that really is is our strategy. What what makes Virtua unique? Um, It's really our expertise across the development, the entire development cycle. Um, We have a team from the acquisition to entitlement, which is zoning, working with municipalities, to vertical development, to management. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Hotel Equities is our hotel management arm. We've been around for three decades. Um, The original founder of Hotel Equities was one of the original uh, 12 individuals that Mr. Marriott tapped himself to, to, to spread his name out there in the hotel industry. Uh, we are the only hotel managed company in the world that has been certified by Marriott to train operators. So, Jimmy, if you had a, a hotel piece of property that you wanted to develop as a, a Marriott hotel and you had little to zero um, hotel management experience and you also wanted to be an operator, well, then Marriott would send you to us and you go through our two-year training program and we certify you. So um, that allows us an incredible um, level of expertise to make sure that the successful uh, execution, not only of the development, but also the manage ongoing management of, of that property. You know, just to give you an idea, hotel management, it is a 24 hours, seven days a week business. And um, in that particular asset class, retention for staffing um, is 24%. You know, our retention rate is 71%. And why should that matter to investors? The reason is you and I can't be at a hotel at 3 a.m. in the morning when the pipe breaks. And on average, we've measured this, it takes about three years for someone to be trained at the hotel to be able to address that 3 a.m. pipe break for you. So it is critically important to have a team that has been with you, has stayed with you, you have better guest scores, you're able to charge uh, higher fees, you have higher occupancy. And uh, that, that's just, I guess, part of our secret sauce, because at the end of the day, it's, it's boots on the ground and, and getting in there and managing these properties, working closely with municipalities, keeping our costs down. And uh, that, that's really been part of the, the secret sauce that has made many of our investments uh, attractive to our investors. And that's obviously impacting your financial bottom line, that workforce development program at your hotel properties. And that's impressive that your retention rate is as high as it is, nearly triple what uh, what the industry average is. But in addition to that workforce development program impacting your financial bottom line, that also plays into delivering 
social impact in your community, does it not? And can, can you talk uh, a little bit about, about that? Yeah, this is something, and, and Jimmy, thank you. Thank you for, for asking that. It's something very close to, to my heart. Um, as I shared with you earlier, um, my father worked at a donut shop, and the opportunities I was given here, I wouldn't have had in, in any other country in this world. And, and I think that as I travel, you know, we have over 2,100 um, associates across 30 states. We're in three provinces in Canada. We have over 23 hotels just in Canada alone, over 130 here in the U.S. And as I travel across the country, um, I find that sometimes those opportunities I was given, you know, three decades ago, they're they're not available to everyone. And it's uh, if you don't have an opportunity at a college education, there's just no path to the middle class. So if you have some financial problems, some drug problem, family problems, teenage pregnancy, and here you can't get to the middle class. Um, it's heartbreaking. And yet I see an incredible talent pool across the country. And what we say in our organization, it's not a hand out, it is a hand up. And what does that mean? Show us that you're driven. You're gonna, um, we have six month, one year, two year training programs. And 25% of our management team has come through a training program with us. Our retention rate, that's critical. And I think, um, and why I, I've shared with, with Senator Scott and, and others uh, back in D.C. and, and in our federal government it is, is, you know, here's an opportunity for us not only to create the number of new jobs, but also Let's look at this potential salary um, of those jobs as well. You know, years ago, decades ago, I worked on projects where were part of the federal uh, stimulus plan, and some of those jobs were sadly were just sweeping. I mean, I, I, and I'll be honest with you, and those were counted as as new jobs created, and, and those are not jobs. People want to be able to go home and at dinner share with their family what they do for a living. We spend time early in the morning to late at night, away from our families, we sacrifice that time. You wanna know that there, there is a reason why, you know, you, you earn a dollar, but you also wanna know that there's a purpose to what you do. And I find that that is a purpose that um, many people across the country want. And in this day and age where a lot of people are saying, you know, there's a lot of, I know, frustration and, and anger at, at the environment here in our country, I still believe that there are so many opportunities here. And if we could provide those jobs, and as employers um, in these opportunity zones, I think we have a responsibility to look very closely at our training programs and how we can give opportunities for those who have come in to become supervisors, managers, executive managers. And here they now have a pathway to the middle class. So that's that's been something that I've, um, I've shared with uh, both not only local elected officials statewide um, had an opportunity to, to be at the White House and with Secretary Mnuchin um, of the Treasury Mnuchin back in DC and uh, just sharing how critically important for these metrics to measure both on workforce development, but also on our housing side, on our single family rental units and multifamily, we not only need to measure entry level, but also how many units can we provide for workforce and affordable housing. I know there are a lot of luxury homes, they're beautiful, um, that are being built in some of the zones. Um, we focus on entry level, 
um, partially. You know, we look at it as, you know, we can keep those occupancies no matter what the economy is at a uh, high, almost completely full, um, which bottom line is what the investors want because it mitigates risk. But also um, luxury homes really don't have that much to, to offer when it comes to social impact. And, uh, and at the end of the day, we need to realize that this needs to be sustainable and that we are getting a public subsidy and that we need to perform a public good for that subsidy. So there needs to be a measurable standard. Uh, we're working closely with right now with a number of nonprofits, again, Chicano por la causa with their um, data, as well as ASU, uh, a university to better develop those metrics. We already have an internal set of metrics in order to measure social impact. Whenever we look at a property, it needs to make financial sense to get the mid, um, the five, eight percent cash on cash return, if not higher for the investors, monthly distributions, but also 15 to 20 percent IRR. And then it also needs to have a social impact component. And we kind of stay in our lanes. You know, we we know hospitality and we know residential housing. And in those two areas, we measure workforce development and we measure number of units. There's a I think we all know that there's a crisis across the country right now for affordable housing. You know, two people can work and yet still not afford uh, a safe, clean place to live. And, and we want to be a, a part of that solution. Oh, absolutely. So you went into great detail with your workforce development program. I want to talk with you a little bit more about, about the housing that you're creating uh, your bread and butter, as you said, is hospitality, hotel, and and multifamily. Getting to your multifamily properties, what percentage of your units are going to be affordable housing or or workforce housing? And can you talk about that a little bit? And 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 who who exactly your your target market is for those types of units? Absolutely. We work on multifamily, but also we're known for our single family rentals. Um, what we're finding across the country, um, millennials, for example, um, there used to be a time where, where a lot of people thought millennials wanted to live downtown um, in a loft type of setting. But interestingly, um, as soon as they get married, have the dog and have the child, people still want the American dream, a two, three bedroom home with a little bit of a yard in the back. What has changed, though, in our demographics across the country is those graduating college, many times, they're, they're kind of three things that come up. One, they can't, um, they don't get the job that they at the salary they thought they would. Two, many um, couples are strapped by student uh, debt. And um, finally, the third one is they don't get promoted as quickly as they would expect. And what that has caused is a much more transient uh, population. Uh, unlike Jimmy, perhaps our parents who bought a home and stayed in it for, for three decades, it's the house you grew up in, your parents may still live in it. Many times now, one of the ways that um, the next generation gets a promotion or a raise is literally leaving a job and taking another job. So moving around the country. So we find that our single family rental product has been incredibly um, popular. So that entry level product, and you're, you're and, and I just wanted to give you kind of the a breadth and kind of color of the the space. Why, um, how can we meet some of these numbers? It really comes down to one: the numbers have to make sense for us. Areas of the country, the southeast, 
the southwest, um, that Sunbelt area, why those states are um, growth. You see a lot of people moving to those states. They are uh, lower taxes, lower regulations, more jobs are being created. So you see a lot of influx of population going to those areas. How do you get the work workforce housing and affordable housing? This is when it is critically important to work with municipalities who have um, an open ear to this. And we found with Opportunity Zones, we have. Um, we work very closely with uh, Mayor Bell, um, who uh, was the previous uh, mayor of Birmingham, Alabama, who used to head up the head um, up the African American Mayors Association, and just sharing how can we work together. We are very transparent within the communities we work with across the country, and we'll show them these are how many units this area can support. And usually we develop a open dialogue with the community saying, how many units do you need for workforce housing? How many do you need for affordable housing? And at that time, you have cities who will work with us and say, hey, these are the subsidies. Um, we can decrease the impact fees. Perhaps we can look at uh, HUD, Section 8, LIHTC. Um, and then you start layering these subsidies in order to provide anywhere from 10 to 25% of the, um, the product or the number of units can be set aside for workforce housing and affordable housing. And as more of those subsidies are stacked on so that you can still get the return, the decent return that investors um, demand, you can start reaching deeper down into the economic stack and providing units. Um, one of the big questions, I think the next question you I think many of the listeners will ask, well, well, what about gentrification? We work so closely with our cities and our nonprofit um, groups and commit, uh, community leaders on gentrification. It is a real problem. So how can you make sure that every unit you displace, you can replace them right in the new project? Well, you, you measure that. You, you know exactly how many units you're displacing, and you quantify what that will cost in materials and labor in order to provide that. And then you work, go work backwards with the city municipalities. What additional subsidies can we layer on here to make sure that we can provide this? And um, that's how we've been able to, to provide between 10 to, to 25% of the, um, the total units uh, setting aside for workforce and affordable housing. That's good. Yeah, as, as my listeners surely know, there's, there's no requirement for social benefit. There, there's no requirement that, that you do any of the workforce development or workforce housing or affordable housing units that you're building. Uh, so I'm, it's, it's good to see that, that you are doing that uh, because it is important. And, and I think it's the only way that this program has a chance of succeeding and potentially getting extended or renewed if, if we, can, we can show our leaders in government and the citizens of this country that this program is doing good. Jimmy, I, I agree with you. You know, at the end of the day, I feel like there's two basic needs that people need in order to grow and thrive. And that is they need to have a home that is safe, um, that's clean, um, that they know that they can leave their kids there and they can go off to work and know that they can, um, that that's a safe place and that they can come home and put their feet up. And, and two, people need to to have a sense of pride in what they do, 
knowing that it is for a purpose um, and that there's a value in what they do. It's not just collecting a paycheck. And it's also important that that paycheck be, be able to sustain and, and care for their families. So I think those two components, when we look at, you know, at least for us, when we measure it, if we can provide those two very, very basic needs, um, it can allow others to thrive and, and, and be more creative. It's, it's hard to be creative if you're worried about where you're sleeping every night. It's hard to be creative when the job you work for over eight hours a day, um, you see no pathway for um, for improvement or, or to grow into the middle class. So incredibly um, important. And, and that's why I, I've asked so, I, I'm, I feel so strongly about all of us as sponsors, you know, um, last count, I know, we work uh, closely with the New York Times, and, and the last count that, that the team over there came up with was there's a, about 100, and I know this number has probably gone up, about 100 new sponsors for Opportunity Zones. 60% of them have never had experience in a fund before this, which is just frightening. So you want to make sure that if we can measure how we're going to impact it. You can't get there without measuring it. I, I think... Uh, I know you and I talked briefly, and this is what I share with my own team here here at uh, Virtuous. You know, if, I, if we're not very specific on where we want to go, we won't go there. If, I, if we told everyone on the listening today, let, let's all meet each other in the center of Europe. You know, you know, half the people will show up in Rome, the other group will show up in Berlin. We have to be very specific, and that's why a, a metrics, a common standard by which not only municipalities but elected officials, the federal government. And us as sponsors can say, great, this is how many jobs we created. We're measuring jobs. We're looking at the salaries of those jobs. These are the programs and how effective are our programs, training the individuals, working at the jobs that we've created. And on the housing side, this is how many units. Now these are how many entry-level units. These are how many workforce units and how many affordable units. And even deeper down to ELI, which is the extremely low income, if we have enough subsidies stacked up where that continues to make um, financial sense. But unless we have that social impact, how will we know in 10 years when we look back that this has actually made an impact on our communities and our neighborhoods? And it also gives an incredible transparency for investors to know, hey, this is a group that my dollars, I'm getting the return, and it's actually giving back to the community as well. Oh, that's great. That's great. And uh, let's let's talk about that a little bit more, actually. Let's talk about positive social impact and measuring the impact. As longtime listeners of this show already know, I'm sure, the original Investing in Opportunity Act included a mandate to Treasury to collect data and report on that data. That provision of the statute was pulled out of the final bill that got passed as the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act at the end of 2017. But there has been some effort by several groups around the country. The OZ framework comes to mind, and the Opportunity Funds Association is another group that comes to mind, which I know you're involved with. And they are attempting to develop frameworks for measuring the impact in Opportunity Zones. There's also a Senate bill that was introduced uh, by Senator Scott and Senator Booker a couple months back that is looking to restore the Treasury mandate to measure impact and report on impact in opportunity zones. So to you, I ask this, and you already alluded to this a little bit earlier, so you may repeat yourself now, and that's fine. 
it it's definitely important to show that this program is working. So which which metrics specifically are you looking at and how are you measuring impact? And can you characterize your relationship with the Opportunity Funds Association and, and maybe talk about some of the meetings that you've had on Capitol Hill and, and with our with our policymakers? Yeah. Um, in early January of 2018, our team sat around and said, how can we measure this? Because if we can't measure it, we don't even know if we're doing social impact. When we do an underwriting of a project, we can measure if this has the returns, you know, the 15 to 20% IRR on project level returns for our investors. But how can we show investors that this truly has a social impact? So we started measure, looking at um, what I had shared with you before, number of jobs quality of the jobs, pathway, how do you measure by looking at titles and salaries, a pathway to the middle class, training for those jobs, housing, the units. I would My recommendation to, to those I know, um, both back in DC and, and had an opportunity at the White House as well, you know, remember, Jimmy, the, the goal of the White House that they had shared you know, when I was there was that they wanted this to, the opportunity zones to create jobs, to spur entrepreneurship, and to reduce crime. I mean, th- those were the three goals that, that the White House wanted to, to hit. So, you know, looking at that and knowing um, that that's the spirit of it, I just find in business, sometimes it's easier um, to keep the numbers fairly simple. What we don't want is so uh, like spreadsheet after spreadsheet of data where you, you know, you and I can't sit down and look at it and say, is this improving it? So we want to make sure that it's, it's um, we can quantify it. We want to keep it um, easy for anyone to look at and say, I get it. That's creation of number of jobs. I get it. That's look at the salary and the quality of the jobs that are coming. We're also working closely with ASU and, and academia and ha- opening pretty much all of our underwriting doc records, as well as our nonprofit partners so that they can see it and help us to better measure that. And we've been sharing that with Shay, um, Shay Hawkins, you know, Shay's um, uh, started uh, an Opportunity Funds Association. I know his, he's got an incredible heart um, to make sure that this is successful. I know Senator Scott, um, a month ago when I was with him, um, and, and uh, he invited us out to uh, DC to speak with others. You know, he wants, he said, you know, this, what's the point? We, we need to be able to have that, in, that social impact and give back to our communities. This needs to work and what is gonna make it work. Part of it is if we have these metrics, we've been sharing with Shay and he's been such an incredible um, voice to get that message across the country. Um, both uh, to our elected uh, officials and also to sponsors, um, developers across the country. So we really applaud him and and in any way we can help support and uh, give him kind of boots on the ground numbers of what we find working, what we find not working. But um, my recommendation, you know, we've kind of outlined, we continue to get feedback as we, we look at measuring our numbers. What can we measure short term? What can we measure long term? Um, but I also would like to keep it so that people can read it and they don't have to read 30 spreadsheets to look at the data collected. It could be you, because there's more accountability that way when, it, when it's a metrics that you can measure. I would like to see um, a committee formed, um, including uh, local 
investors and uh, local developers and sponsors so that we can continue to give that feedback and um, develop that metrics so that we can reach that goal. You know, in anything, you need to very clearly identify what win is. I tell the team that we could spin our wheels all day long and work on our, our projects, but until you really clearly identify what win is, you won't get there. So this is the same thing. An opportunity zone investment is a new investment class. And so we need to clearly identify what is a win. Is a win for us, we identify project level rate of return, 15 to 20%, social impact, workforce development, number of jobs, quality of the jobs, workforce training, entry level units, workforce housing, affordable. So that is what WIN looks like. And I think if we can continue to put more concrete numbers on what WIN looks like, that's what's needed. Define what a WIN is, and then you'll know whether or not you get there. I like that. And yes, Shay Hawkins, founder and CEO of the Opportunity Funds Association. He was Senator Tim Scott's former tax advisor. And he was my guest on the June 12th episode of this podcast, episode number 35. If, uh, if listeners of this episode want to check that one out next, I would highly encourage you. Quinn, I wanted to talk a little bit more about, about Virtua's Opportunity Zone funds. How many funds, how many Opportunity Zone funds have you created so far? How much are you looking to raise overall? And how much have you raised so far? Well, you know, we have $3 billion of assets under management. So even outside of our, our Opportunity Zone funds, and we're across 30 states, and as I shared earlier, three Canadian provinces, we've raised $100 million in OZs. Half of that's deployed. We have a pipeline of about 100 projects in different stages um, across the country. Um, we've got uh, the first one to break ground, Opportunity Zone project to break ground was Avondale, which was a Marriott Spring Hill Suites, 130 rooms. Um, I know Senator Scott, Senator McSally, uh, former Governor Brewer, um, Mayor Bell all joined us to celebrate, and that, that was great. Tempe, um, that's 90 units in Arizona, a multifamily that just broke ground um, about two weeks ago. Um, we have about three other projects breaking ground. Um, North Carolina, um, all the way. Uh, I'm going to be in, in two weeks headed out to uh, to Florida. We have projects out there breaking ground as well. Um, we have four funds. Uh, we have identified, you know, right now we're just queuing up our projects because they're in different stage. Some in entitlement uh, stage, still going through zoning. Some working still closely with municipalities to identify what the right mix is. Um, I always tell the team, you can't make a square peg fit into a round hole. We need to work with our communities and work with our cities and identify what the need is there. You don't build luxury homes where there is no driver for luxury homes. You don't put a hotel where there's no driver or need. The hotel doesn't create drivers. The drivers are there and you place a product that fits that need. And that's how you create a sustainable project. That's how you mitigate risk on a project. Um, that's critically important. So a lot of our investors um, are ultra high net worth family offices. Um, many of them have worked with us uh, over the years. We, we've worked on their other commercial real estate assets. Um, 
over the years and, and uh, work closely with them. So it gives you a little color on, on our different funds. And, and again, we're regional in Southeast, uh, Southwest, and we also have some in the Northeastern region, um, some uh, in the West uh, area, really kind of um, identified according to what our investors in order to better diversify our, our investors' portfolio as well. But hospitality, and single-family rentals, residential, multifamily, townhomes. Good. And you, you said you have four opportunity zone funds currently? We do. We do. And what, what's the target raise on each of them? Um, we have two. A uh, number of them are $200 uh, million. And so we're about, we're about a, we have a couple other smaller funds, but um, $900 million, so just uh, short of a billion dollars, is our, our overall raise when we look at all, all 100 projects coming through the pipeline. Not all of them are ready to go yet. So. Across, across all four Opportunity Zone funds? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. 100 different projects. That's, that's, that's <laughs> quite a bit. But you it's actually still a drop in the a, a drop in the bucket compared to, to what uh, our country needs, right? Um, that is true. Critical that crisis is, right now. So. That's that's true. But you've actually broken ground on on several of them already, which is impressive. Oh, thank you. Good, and of course, Virtua has to make some money as well along the way. Do you mind if I ask you what your fee structure is on on your funds? We have a um, for our QP or qualified. It's a one and a half percent on the management um, by our fund managers, and then two percent on. Um, just your accredited investors coming in. And do you have a promote structure as well? On our development projects, it's per deal. So, you know, I don't have it right in front of me, Jimmy. Well, no, that's that, that's great though, Quinn. Thanks for thanks for sharing some of that information because I know my listeners always like getting like some real numbers and I know you shared with me your cash on cash return numbers and your IRR numbers that you're projecting. It's, it's also important to, to keep in mind what the fees are. So thank you for, for uh, giving me some transparency into that. Absolutely. And I would do the promote only because, and the only thing is depending on the project, right? Because what I find is that different projects, I, if investors take anything away, they need to make sure that they are getting the return and they compare it to the amount of risk that they're taking. You, if you, if you find yourself putting, getting, um, it's riskier, you should be getting an equivalent return that compensates you for that risk. So when you talk about um, a promote, when you talk about um, these, I, I just it's something that we look at deal by deal because we need to know that that fifteen to twenty percent IRR in some of our projects you get a thirty percent IRR because it's riskier. You know, we we think it's in in those projects that are you know um, we feel that are not that risky. You know, you're in an area that you know you see all these different drivers. Well, then the return is less, and so uh, you know it's really um, project by project. Good. No, that that makes sense. So that's kind of hard to quantify then if it's on a project by project basis and you have about a hundred of them. There, there's no, there's no, there's no one number you can give us. That's fine. I understand that. Following up on that, what do you see as the biggest challenge or the biggest threat to the Opportunity Zones program? I think perhaps educating um, the public. You know, uh, a lot of you, you can't open a newspaper or a magazine or on the news and not hear about opportunity zones. Um, there was a long wait for the regulations. Um, so that was a challenge. And so a lot of people uh, are also asking about regulations. It needs to be sustainable. 
Um, we need to, uh, again, we, we need to measure this um, in order to ensure uh, of its success. And we need to educate in order for this to be successful. We need to educate investors. Uh, that's why I applaud you. And uh, I know um, PBS um, did a, a, you know, just helping to educate everyone, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal that we've spoken to. Um, and I think there's a, a true heart out there to educate not only the investors on what this legislation um, and this tax incentive provides, but also educating local municipalities so that the project can be successful and also educating the nonprofits. Um, I, uh, I'll give you just a little, you know, in the early days of 2018, when, when no one was talking about opportunity zones and we were sharing it with our shareholders and we were putting together the educational uh, webinars just to get the education out there for people, we were flooded by calls from city municipalities. And uh, I remember uh, the team would get calls sometimes from, from local cities saying, well, how do, you, uh, how do you contact the federal government to get our check for this? And we had to explain, no, there's no check that comes from the federal government. And I think that education, uh, that, you know, that, that's just an anecdotal story to share you know, some of the, perhaps the misinformation that is out there. So I think that is a huge undertaking because we can only become more effective. Um, we can only reduce the potential for bad actors. We can only increase the number of projects that have strong social impact if we can better educate all the stakeholders. And that includes everyone from the investors to city municipalities, to sponsors, you know, the development team, the management team, the local community. So. Um, that is a lot of people to educate, and um, part of the reason, you know, I'm, you know, thank you for for putting the program, um, this podcast, so that people can um, can get this message. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a, it's a lot of work, but I'm having a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> so then, thank you for for joining me today. This has been has been a great conversation. I think it's been very informative for our guests. Before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Virtua? Yeah, we um virtualpartners.com uh, and um we have uh I know we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn and uh Virtua. I know sometimes the spelling of that, I know we chuckled about it's uh V I R T U A, so Virtua Partners uh plural and uh and our number is listed there as well. So um any questions or any additional feedback anyone needs and Jimmy, thank you so much for allowing me to share this time with you on the line with the with your listeners oh you're welcome and, and thank you and for our listeners out there i'll have show notes for this episode on the opportunity zones database website you can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast and you'll find links to all of the resources that quinn and i discussed on today's show i'll have links to virtual partners website as well as their facebook and linkedin profiles I'll also have links to Chicano por la Casa and to Opportunity Funds Association and the episode I did with Shay Hawkins a few weeks ago. Quinn, again, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Jim. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. 
Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund Investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.